everybody at all of our campuses meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. I want to welcome those of you also who are watching online. Glad you could join us, and happy Easter to everybody. I do want to especially welcome those of you who are here for the first time, and if it's been a while since you've been in church, I just invite you to sit back and relax and take it in. Honestly, we don't want anything from you, but we do want something for you, and so maybe this can be a beginning of sorts for some of you here today. And just to get things started, I want to raise a question for you to think about, and you might think about this throughout the message, but the question is this, what do you believe in? Just think about that for a second. What do you believe in? Because I think everybody believes in something. Some people believe in karma, luck, chance, fate. Some people believe in themselves, actually. Some people believe in a higher power beyond themselves, but I think everybody believes in something. Even those who say that they don't believe in God I think, are actually choosing to believe in something else. But the truth is, no matter what you believe in, there's always going to be some doubt surrounding that belief. And the more important something is, often the more doubt there is. For example, choosing a major in college, if you're a student here today, there's oftentimes doubt surrounding that choice, and students will often switch. Uh, a career path, you know, where, what, what do I think I should be doing in life? There's some doubt around that. Where to live? Uh, who to marry? If that comes our way. Who to, who to marry? Ha having kids or how many kids is, is oftentimes filled with doubt. Two months ago, my daughter Meg and our son-in-law Nellie had their first baby, and Meg called the other day and said, all three of us are crying. The baby, me, and Nellie. I mean, having kids is filled with doubt and misery, I might add. But dating, <laughs> dating is filled with doubt, isn't it? I, I remember back in seventh grade, way back in seventh grade, and I began noticing a cute little classmate named Kathy and her soft brown eyes and smile just put me away. I mean, neither of us talked to each other much, but we found ourselves sitting together at basketball games and riding the bus home together. I couldn't even put words to it, but she was all I could think about. Three months later, my friend Mark Middleton, who was a seasoned expert in this area, he was 12, asked me, asked me if Kathy and I was, was, were going steady, and I said, well, I, I don't really know because we don't talk very much. And he said, well, if you want to go steady, Bob, you got to get her a ring. And so the very next day, I went to Kmart, and I bought a ring with the letter B on it, a man-sized ring for $5. The B stood for Bob. And without saying a word, I presented this ring to her the very next day in school. It was the biggest moment of my young life. She looked at me with those soft brown eyes, and without saying a word, she took this ring in her hand and gave me a smile that said, I'm your girl. I'm it. Kathy took my ring home. She wrapped about two feet around, yarn around it so it would fit her finger, and she wore my ring with the letter B on it for the rest of that year because we were going steady, and we haven't even held hands yet, but we were going steady. Six months later, my dad told me we were moving. 500 miles east to Pittsburgh. We lived in Chicago. And that was the worst day of my life. Uh, and just Kathy and I vowed to keep our relationship going. I don't know how we were going to do that. We were just 12. But about a month later, I got a little box in the mail. And inside that box was my ring with the letter B on it. And just like that, it was over. I had sent a letter, friendly letter to another girl that Kathy kind of found out about, which might have had something to do with it. But that stirred up all kinds of <laughs> that stirred up all kinds of doubt that affected every relationship I had after that. About eight years later, I was sitting across the, a restaurant table with another girl. I was 21 years old, and I had a ring in my pocket because I was about to ask this girl to go steady for the rest of our lives. 
But I had all these doubts in my head, and so I asked her about a dozen questions. Questions like, what would you think about being married to a pastor? And do you, do you, do you think you would mind being poor for a while? Could you live in a state where the weather tries to kill you six months out of the year? I mean, it was more like an inquisition than an engagement. But I pulled the ring out of my pocket, and I asked Laurie to marry me. And she looked down at this ring. She smiled, and she said, what does the letter B stand for? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I wasn't that stupid. I was stupid, but not that stupid. Now, I'd love to tell you that everything went great after that, but it didn't. We had so much tension and conflict in our engagement that both of us were filled with doubt about this whole marriage thing. Now today, after 35 years of being married, we still have differences in our relationships. We have complexities that we don't yet understand about each other. But my point is this. Every high-stakes relationship or belief that you have is often filled with doubt. So today on Easter... We join over a third of the world's population to affirm our belief that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and is the Savior of the world. Without Jesus' resurrection, Christianity just collapses. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, if Christ has not been raised, I mean, forget it, then our faith is useless, we are dead in our sins, but Christ has indeed, he says, been raised from the dead. And friends, it's something that people actually saw. They witnessed it. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter stood up in Jerusalem and said, we can't help ourselves. We can't help speak about what we have seen and heard. Jesus' resurrection was an event that people saw. It wasn't an idea or a philosophy or a teaching of some sort. This was a historical event that people saw. And millions of people down through history have put their belief in Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, and they would tell you that he has changed their life, that he's forgiven their sins, that he's given them hope for life after death. But I'll tell you what, other people aren't so sure about that and are plagued by doubt. If you have some doubts about this whole thing today, you're in good company. You might be glad to know that one of, the, one of Jesus' closest followers, Thomas, had such severe doubts about Jesus' resurrection that he refused to believe it at first. I mean, who would believe it? Thomas saw Jesus get led away and get beaten just inches from his death. He saw him lose copious amounts of blood. He saw him eventually suffocate and gasp for air on the cross and then breathe his last breath before getting a spear thrust up into his chest cavity to make sure that he was dead. Dead men don't come back to life after something like that and then walk around three days later like nothing happened. Just doesn't, just doesn't happen. Of course Thomas doubted. Of course he demanded visible evidence to such an outrageous claim that people were making that Jesus had come back to life. Mary Magdalene was the first to discover the empty tomb. As we get into this story, she thought someone had stolen the body. And so we pick it up in John chapter 20. It says, early while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the, from the entrance. Now, a common form of burial in that day was, was tombs or caverns that uh, were carved out in sandstone or the rock, and then they would block those, those openings with big stones to keep wild animals out. 
or to keep thieves out from stealing jewelry or valuables that might be associated with it. So it's very early in the morning, and Mary sees that the stone has been removed and that the body is missing. We pick it up. Bible says, so she came running to Peter and John and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and John, they go running toward the tomb to find out what's going on. And the Bible says this, both were running, but John outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now John is the the author of the Gospel of John. And why he points this out, I have no idea. He says, but I beat Peter to the tomb. I beat him in a foot race. It's just a guy thing. I don't know why. It has no relevance to the story whatsoever, but it's in the Bible. I beat him. Okay? So bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. It goes on to say, then Peter arrived, because Peter was slower than John. John points out. Peter arrives, went into the tomb, and saw the linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And it puzzled them. Because there's this empty tomb, there's the linen on the ground. Not a big deal to us, but I'll tell you something. Linen back in those days was extremely expensive. They didn't have factories and machines cranking these things out. Linen in those days was made by hand, took weeks to make. Very expensive. So if there was a thief or thieves who stole the body or did something like that, they would have certainly taken the linen and sold it on the open market. So John and Peter are standing there in the tube. They're trying to figure this out when suddenly a light bulb goes on in John's head who went inside the tomb, and this is what the Bible says. John saw, and he believed. John thinks he's back. Now, not simply because of the empty tomb or the linen. That'd be kind of flimsy evidence. But John is standing there, and he's starting to piece this all together. He witnessed Jesus' life for three years. He watched Jesus heal the sick, give sight to the blind. He watched them cast out demons and then predict his own death and resurrection. And all of it came together in that moment for John. And John knew he's back. He saw and believed. Meanwhile, Mary's completely lost in grief. Verse 11 says that Mary stood outside the tomb crying because she thinks the grave has been violated and wonders if the body just got dumped somewhere. But then the Bible says that Jesus appears to Mary, and she's the first one that Jesus appears to. Very unusual that the biblical writers would point out that Jesus appeared to a woman because women didn't have status in those days. But the biblical writers says, you know what? She was the first one. Jesus appeared to Mary, the Bible says, but in her grief, she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. Maybe didn't even really look at him. And so this is what happens. Jesus engages her in conversation. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now, Jesus kind of knew. But she said, sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've put him. And I'll go get him. And then the Bible says that Jesus said one word to her. He said, Mary. Mary. And he said it like he said it. Like only he said it. And she knew. John knew. And now Mary knows. For John, it's because he saw something and he believed. For Mary, it's because he said my name. 
He spoke my name. See, it's different for everybody. Belief comes to people in different ways. Some people see and experience something. For others, it's when Jesus says their name. Katie. Jess. Kyle. Bill. And they are 100% sure that they have heard the still, small voice of Jesus calling their name, not audibly, but just by his spirit to theirs. And maybe some of you have experienced that or will even experience it today. Some see and believe. Some hear their name, but others need hard evidence. And the disciples were afraid the authorities might come after them next, so they're hiding in a locked room behind closed doors. When Jesus appears to them for the first time, and his resurrected body had an ability to transcend walls and transcend doors. And one day when we die, those of us who are Christians and get to heaven, we'll have a resurrected body. It'll be such a cool body. And a lot of us need a new body. I, you know, I need a new body too, more and more. But Jesus had this resurrected body. He appears to them and he says, peace be with you. And they're like, I'm so glad you said peace because we are so freaked out right now that you're standing here. But Jesus said peace. The Bible says that Thomas wasn't present, though, in that first meeting. And so the disciples go look for him. And they, it says, when we, they said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas doesn't believe this. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and touch his side, I will not believe this. Unless I see him, unless I'm able to touch him, I will not believe this. John saw and believed. Mary, he said my name. But Thomas needs hard evidence. I'm not going to believe this until I see him. So a week later, the disciples again were gathered in the same room. And this time Thomas was there. And look what it says. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to Thomas... Thomas, go ahead, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out and touch my side. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. And the very next phrase, Thomas says five, five words. He says, my Lord and my God, not my teacher, not my prophet, not a really, really nice guy. Thomas, in that moment, recognizes that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and so he worships him. And friends, it's different for everybody. Belief is different, comes differently. John saw and believed something. Mary, he spoke her name. Thomas needed hard evidence. And finally, the Bible says Jesus did many other miraculous signs, but these are written that you and me, at all six campuses, that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by, be, by believing, you may have life in his name. And I love this word life. It doesn't just mean eternal life someday when we die. He's talking about the abundant life that we can begin to enjoy here on earth. Life that's filled with forgiveness and peace of heart and soul, joy. Goodness, patience, kindness, relational wellness in our families and in our relationships. It's the kind of life that God wants to breathe into our lives even now. 
not when we die someday, although that's included eternal life. So I just want to raise a question. How's your life today? How's your life? Are you experiencing this full and abundant life that Jesus wants to give you? You might say, but Bob, I still have way too many doubts to believe in this. And I get that. But then how's your belief? How's your life without belief? How's your life without Jesus? How's your life without forgiveness and peace and hope? How's your family? How's your life? Some of you might say, you know, my life is fine. I don't need Jesus. It's fine without Jesus. But how is it really? Have you thought about your future? Have you thought about your relationships? Have you thought about your purpose for living? Why God chose to put you on this planet? Have you thought about your death? John says, look, when you believe, you will have a new kind of life in his name. I had all kinds of doubts about my career, about my marriage, even my faith, but here's what I did. I brought my doubts to the door of belief, and I walked through. I brought my doubts with me to the door of belief, and I walked through. I have not had, I've never had 100% certainty about anything in life, especially about marriage or having kids. I mean, there's all kinds of doubts and faith. I've never had 100% certainty about anything, but as I brought my doubts to the door of belief and walked through, here's what began to happen for me. I don't know about for you, but one by one, my doubts became less and less. And the things that I doubted became real to me and good and wonderful to the point where I have very few doubts about any of those things. But let me touch on just two reasons why our belief in Jesus Christ matters so much. The first reason is this. Our sins can be forgiven. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would say to someone, your sins are forgiven, and then something amazing would happen. They would be set free. They would have this freedom, this forgiveness, this new lease on life that came to them when they experienced God's forgiveness. What if you knew that all of your sins could be forgiven? What if you knew that you could leave here today completely free and forgiven of any and every sin you've committed? One psychiatrist has said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they just knew they were forgiven. Most of us have said or done things that we're ashamed of. I certainly have done things I'm ashamed of. For some of us, it's been an entire lifetime of things we're ashamed of. For others of us, it's a single choice that we wish we could reverse. You know, in 2001, Scott Waddell made one of those choices when he tried to show off his billion-dollar submarine to some guests near Pearl Harbor. Maybe some of you are familiar with this story. It was a single sinful moment when he decided to break the rules that destroyed his life and wrecked his career. Scott was the captain of the nuclear submarine called the USS Greenville. He graduated top of his class, was handpicked out of 250 naval officers to command this attack submarine. He was, he was a success in every way. Great marriage, captain in the Navy, bright future. But then on February 9th, 2001, he did a foolish maneuver 
where in front of his guest, he took his submarine from deep ocean to the top of the surface, and just before they surfaced, there was this loud crash, and when they, he looked out the periscope, he saw a Japanese boat full of high school kids who were now scrambling for the life rafts, and nine of them died. It was an international crisis. He was relieved of his command that very day. Near the end of his book called The Right Thing, Scott Waddle says this, says these words. All of us have those moments in life when you take your eye off the road and suddenly there's a child on a bicycle right in front of you. Or you allow yourself a momentary indiscretion. Or you choose to start drinking at a young age. Those seemingly insignificant choices that can take on a proportion you never dreamed possible. We think it could never happen to me. But then it did. And in a single moment, my life was totally changed. Scott Waddle wished a thousand times he could reverse that moment. But friends, he can't. It's irreversible. Anybody here wish you could have a single moment back in your life? A moment you've regretted and relived a thousand times. Maybe it's a moment when you lost your temper with your son or daughter that sent your relationship crashing ever since. Maybe it's a moment when you said things in a meeting that embarrassed a colleague at work that tarnished your reputation beyond repair. Maybe it was a moment when you gave into a financial temptation that threw you into an ocean of debt and regret ever since. Maybe it's a moment when you had too much to drink and you decided to try to drive home anyway. Or a moment when you gave in to somebody you barely knew. And again, and again. Maybe it was a moment when you stayed late at work with someone you had feelings for even though you were married to somebody else. Anybody here have moments you regret and wish you could reverse? You say to yourself, if only I didn't do that. If only I hadn't said that. If only I had told the truth. If only I had gotten help. If only I had said I'm sorry, saved my money, pursued God sooner. Maybe I wouldn't have such loss and regret. Many of those regrets are irreversible. But folks, what if you knew that they were forgivable? What if you knew that you could be forgiven of any sin you've ever committed and get a brand new start even today? That's why the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ matters so much. Isaiah the prophet said it this way, he was wounded and crushed for our sins. And God laid on Jesus the sins of us all. Jesus' death was the payment for our sins so that we could be forgiven and set free. And I wonder, do you have that today? Are you set free from guilt? Are you set free from regret that sin brings to every one of us? I'm telling you, belief in Jesus matters so much because through his sacrifice on the cross, taking our sins on himself, we, thank God, can be forgiven. Second reason why belief in Jesus matters so much is because through him, our death can be defeated. I don't know if you've noticed, but death is a real problem. It's a bummer, big time. 
Author John Ortberg says it this way. It's kind of funny. We'll talk about almost anything, but we don't like to talk about death. Life is okay. We, we play a game called life. We eat a cereal called life. Have you ever seen a cereal called death? For people who like to wake up real slow in the morning. We buy life insurance, but what do you have to do to collect it? You have to die, but nobody calls it death insurance. That'd be way too depressing. I mean, death is a problem. It's a bad deal. The Bible says death is our final enemy and nobody escapes it. But Jesus did. His resurrection matters because the enemy death has been defeated and now you and I have hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. This is the wrong verse. There we are. I am the resurrection and the life. He's the only one who can say that. I am the resurrection and the life. I beat death. Here's this key word. Whoever, doesn't matter who you are today, whoever, here's another key word, believes in me will live even if they die. Two weeks ago, Chris Moline died. Chris was one of our employees, a receptionist at our front desk. Hers was, hers was the first voice that people heard when they called our office. Good afternoon, Eaglebrook, this is Chris. And she said it like she meant it. She said it like she was actually glad that you were calling. Chris had a form of cancer that slowly took away her ability to eat, and so for about a month she could eat nothing but ice chips. So a few weeks before her death, just a few weeks ago, Ray Zafke, another pastor here, and I went to her house to sit with her and pray with her and say our goodbyes. When we saw her that day, you'd never know that she was dying. But when you can't eat, it's just a matter of time. So that afternoon, I sat on her couch with her, and I, I picked her hand up, and she gently squeezed mine. I smiled, and I said, I said, you know, Chris... I said, we don't think about eternity much on earth. It's, it's a really hard thing to think about and understand. But the Bible says that a thousand years is like a single day to God. A thousand years is like one day to God. And it says one day is like a thousand years. And so I said, Chris... If you get there before me, I'll see you in about a day. And she nodded, and the tears began to cascade down her cheeks. And we talked about what heaven might be like. And then we prayed. Nobody can explain to me the reason why a person like Chris gets sick and dies at age 48 leaving a couple kids and a husband and lots of friends. What I do know is that it's coming for every person here. It's coming for me. Most of us don't know how soon it's coming like Chris did. But friends, all of us have a day when this life will end for us. And when it does, I want to ask a question of you. What's your plan? How will you defeat death? Chris said, 
if just one person finds Jesus because of this. It'll be worth it. So again, what do you believe in? Jesus' death and resurrection means that your sins can be forgiven and that your death can be defeated. And it's not that you get rid of all your doubts, it's that you bring them with you. And when you get to the door of belief, you walk through, doubts and all. And folks, if you do that, Jesus will meet you. And he'll rescue you. He'll redeem you. He'll give you a new life. So if you haven't done that, will you do it today? Will you bring your doubts to the door of belief? And will you walk through? Final verse. These things are written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing, friends, by believing, you may have life in his name. In a minute, I'm going to pray with you, all six campuses. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to sing a song. But friends, it's Easter. I just want to ask one more time, truly, What are you planting your belief in? What are you staking your life on? What what are you looking to to give you life and forgiveness and peace and joy? What are you believing in to give you eternal life on that day when it's your day? The Bible says God so loved this world. God so loved every person here. He knows every single one of you by name. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows about the brokenness. He knows about the hidden sins. He knows about the anxiety that a lot of us carry through this world or just anxious and afraid. God so loves you and cares about that. The Bible says that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, And he got the living daylights beaten out of him for his claim to be the son of God. They didn't buy it. And then they pounded him to a cross where he bled and he suffered and he died. Here's the deal. To pay for the sins of every person here. To pay for the sins of the world. To pay for my sins. Only the perfect son of God could take that burden on himself and pay for the sins of this world. And so in God's plan, Jesus willingly went to the cross. But on the third day, he rose again. And the Bible says that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him, will have their sins forgiven and their death will be defeated. And so will you, if you haven't done this, Bring your doubts to the door of belief and walk through. I'm going to pray a prayer for all of us as we close and then a song. If you pray this prayer, this will be the greatest day of your life. Be the best decision you ever make. If you do pray this prayer, we have resources for you in all of our lobbies. Got a Bible for you, some other things you want to put in your hand as you leave today. But let's bow at all six campuses for a closing prayer. And this is a holy moment for the rest of us. Be respectful of, of what's going on here. Please stay where you're seated here. Just a couple more minutes, we're done. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this truth that you love this world. You loved each of us so much. You sent your son, Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, I believe there are hundreds of people sitting here today at all six campuses who want to bring their doubts to the door of belief and walk through. And so if that's you today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And you can pray this prayer quietly where you're seated. You don't have to pray it out loud. It's just between you and God. But the prayer goes something like this. Jesus Christ, thank you for loving me. Just pray this to yourself. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And right now I confess my sins to you. Please forgive me of every sin I've committed. Lord Jesus, right now, right here, I am bringing my doubts to the door of belief and I'm walking through to put my faith in you. And so I just want to thank you for this moment. It's not by my works. I have no works that are good enough. But it's simply by faith, by belief, that I receive this free gift of salvation right now in this moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Build a new life inside me. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me the assurance of life after death when I die. I grab hold of it right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you prayed that prayer, way to go. And we got resources for you. We're going to close out now in a song at all six campuses. Sing this as a declaration of belief when you feel comfortable to join in. Here we go.